0: 1 Peter chapter 3, and so uh, last several weeks we're we're bringing some messages that are sort of uh, tangents from our theme here, uh, connected to our theme, looking unto Jesus, and we wanted to look unto Jesus to get assurance of our salvation, so we looked at some scriptures that relate to that a few weeks ago, and then last week we want to look unto Jesus in the aspect of looking to His comforter, Jesus said that when He left, He would give the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> that is, His comforter, to all believers, <clears throat> beginning in the first century and every year since. Uh, anybody who trusts Jesus as their Savior can depend on Him by means of depending on the Holy Spirit that He has given us, that comes to dwell in us, after we are saved. So, we talked about trusting and following the Holy Spirit who is Said to guide us into all truth, we're looking unto Jesus in that way. Now we're going to look unto Jesus in another aspect that you'll just see in a moment here. But first, let's read the text. 1 Peter two, verses eighteen to twenty-five. And I'll just let you know on this subject, I'm kind of like in kindergarten and first grade. I'm not highly experienced, but uh, but I do know it's necessary to uh, to learn this and practice exactly what's being said. First Peter. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 25 is what we're going to read, and then we'll end up walking through just about every verse. We won't spend a ton of time on them, but we'll walk through every one and give you the gist of it. Here we go. 1 Peter 2, verse 18, Peter's writing to Christians, servants, that means employees, be subject to your masters, that is, your employers. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we... Being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but now are ye returned unto the unto the shepherd, and bishop of your souls. So here's the subject. The subject reminds me of uh, something I learned about our one of our probably our most famous astronaut that we've had in the United States is uh, Neil Armstrong. And Neil Armstrong actually died 10 years ago uh, in 2012 at the age of uh, 82. And uh, these guys were incredible, especially, I don't know the current astronauts, but like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and some of these guys were, I mean, incredibly intelligent. (laughs) And some of the things they had to do when they're in space is kind of like you had to figure out uh, you had to be able to do your own math in case the computers don't work. And that's basically what it was if you read about some of their history. Neil Armstrong was an astronaut. He was an aerospace engineer. Uh, he was a Navy fighter pilot also during, he, he did 78 combat missions over North Korea uh, in that day. and He also became a university professor. It's uh, quite a guy, you know, a man of a lot of different skills there, besides being uh, um, putting his life out there, risking the exploits of being uh, an astronaut for several different missions. Of course, he was the first man, technically the first man to walk on the moon, shortly after Buzz Aldrin was right after him walking on the moon. And he was said, and it, some of you, if you know any little bit about him, he was a man of very few words, very kind of like, you know, not out in the forefront. Uh, uh, kind of more uh, pa- not passive in the sense of just quiet in the background. But even though he was a man of few words, he uttered some of the most famous words, right? When he stepped on the moon, he said that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And so he's trying to basically help, uh, say, give credit to those who <coughs> mankind to help get them there, his whole uh, NASA team and everything. But he also said something else very memorable now to me that I don't know if a lot of people knew that's similar to what I just told you. Uh, sometime after he did the, the lunar or the Apollo 11 um, mission and the lunar landing and, and the walk on the moon, I don't know how many years after, I don't, but sometime, some years or some length of time after that, he actually took a trip to Israel. And in the trip to Israel, he uh, was uh, guided by an archaeologist named Mir Ben Dov, uh, Israeli. Mir Ben Dov. He was one of the excavators at the southern Temple Mount. And now the temple there would have been the temple that was in Jesus' day. And I've not been to the Holy Land, a few people, maybe one or two people in here have. But when they are excavating it, they're finding the old ruins of the temple that was in Jesus' day. Now, most of it was destroyed. But. So here he is, Neil Armstrong, in Israel, being guided, probably with some other people, by this well-known archaeologist to this area, this newly excavated area of Southern Temple Mount. Neil Armstrong asked his, uh, the archaeologist, who was also his tour guide, he asked the archaeologist to point out the place where Jesus uh, where Jesus would have walked? Because uh, Jesus went to that temple several times. He frequented that temple. That was where a lot of messages went out. Even the early church went there. So he asked, hey, where would be a place in this area of the temple where Jesus walked? So Ben Dove, the archaeologist, took him to the Huldah gates and showed him the, recently, the most recently excavated southern steps of this temple. Armstrong asked the archaeologist, he says, would these be the original steps that um, Jesus would have walked on? The archaeologist said, yes. Armstrong again said, and by the way, this story is confirmed by two sources, so I'm not trying to pull out some sketchy thing. Armstrong asked him again, so he says, so Jesus stepped right here on these steps. And the archaeologist said, yes. And I want to add another thing. Um, I don't think Armstrong. Armstrong never gave a clear testimony of Christ. As a side note, but anyways, he's interested in this. Are these really the steps Jesus walked on, and the archaeologist said yes. To this, Armstrong replied, "I have to tell you, I am more excited stepping on these stones than I was stepping on the moon." <laughs> That's quite a statement. And again, that's a statement from a man who called himself a deist. That means he never confessed Christ publicly, but he was interested in this moment of this famous person in the places that this famous person, the God-man, our Savior, walked. And he was excited to be able, I'm going to put my step foot where he, he was on this step and on this step and on this step. Wow, I'm more excited to step on these stones than I was stepping on the moon. Again, that was confirmed on two different sources. One of them was a, a book Thomas Friedman wrote, From Beirut to Jerusalem. You know, the Scripture, so this Bible, in our Scripture today, written by Peter but under the inspiration of God, says, look at the verse, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, verse 21, because Christ also suffered us suffered for us leaving us an example that you should follow his steps Now Peter's not saying to all the Christians hey you need to get yourself to Jerusalem and you need to start tracing the literal physical steps of Jesus find those spots where he was at the Temple Mount and go find the uh, the shores of Galilee and try to retrace those and put your foot down there and go by the in Samaria and go next to the Uh, Jacob's well and step right over there and sit right there. He's not saying that to actually kind of in a almost superstitious way, get your feet with your fingers crossed in some lucky charm and go over to where Jesus looked. Don't do that. He's not saying to do that. He's telling us to follow his steps, though. You see that? He's telling us to follow his steps in a certain matter, a particular matter. He's not saying, hey, do you eat like Jesus ate? that doesn't matter how he ate. He's not saying, hey, comb your hair like Jesus combed his hair. We don't know how that was. He's saying follow his steps in a certain particular matter. And the matter that he's talking about is a matter of processing injustice. Jesus had to process injustice. And in that context, he says, You're going to have to copy how he did it. Jesus processed suffering wrongfully, and he responded a certain way to wrongful treatment. And Peter says, we need to follow his steps in what he did there. Um, Enduring grief, suffering wrongfully. You know, the, the book of Peter, this isn't just an isolated thought here. If you actually to study the book of Peter, it's almost about in every chapter. I, in fact, I did find in every chapter Peter mentions Christian suffering at some level. What was happening? This is a book. Again, this is a book of books. First Peter is a book within the in the book of the Bible, and he was written to to Christians scattered in the region. I can't remember the region, but there was a region of that part of the world and he wrote it to different churches and Christians scattered in that region, that he knew were uh, being persecuted and having their faith tried, having their faith tested. Yeah, it's nice to have faith now the enemies are testing it and treating them bad. So Peter writes to encourage them, telling them about the trial of their faith, and telling them not to, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, like we heard not being ashamed. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this matter. This was a theme in the book of 1 Peter of Christian suffering. And one of the things that Peter kind of gives to us as a solution is what what was Jesus' steps when he was suffering wrongfully? What was his steps? And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a couple of preliminary things here in the Bible. Look at verse 18. The context of this first verse really is talking about, it looks like the first thought would be in the context of workplace. Um, the fact that injustice happens and it will happen, even in Peter acknowledges it, that it happens in the workplace. Look at verse 18. Servants, be subject. That is, you know, submit to your own employers. Be subject to your masters with all fear. That is, have, you know, if you are an employee, you have an employer, you submit to them. That's how it works, and do it with respect. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good guys. Not don't just be that way to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward. Froward means that's a bad boss. (laughs) That's a bad boss. I'm not telling anybody to stay in a bad job if you don't have an opportunity to move. I'm not telling anybody that, or if you're literally being abused to just sit there and be a punching bag. I'm not telling you to do that. But he's saying you need we need to we need to be um, good uh, a good. Employee to even those. But he was, and then he goes on to say about enduring grief, verse 19, suffering wrongfully. The idea is that you might be in a works scenario where it's, man, there's a lot of things that just aren't fair. I shouldn't have to have all this junk thrown on me and it's not on that person. What are they, are they disfavoring me? Are they showing favor to this person? And Peter says, You're gonna have to at times endure grief and suffer wrongfully. And hence he acknowledges that. Peter acknowledges. The fact that we have to deal with injustice in this world. Unfair treatment. Don't you? Maybe it's as simple as... See, that's what I'm saying. I'm liking kindergarten and first grade and this stuff, you know. I don't have like a big list of experience and resume of all the hard things I've been through that are just unfair that I've learned to be like Jesus in. I'm still learning. But I know that it's something that we need to acknowledge. It could be that you're getting something unfair from your neighbor. It's not fair when we're like dealing with something right now. Like, why is this always happening here to, with our neighbor here? Or it could be somebody in your own home. You're suffering mistreatment from somebody near you or in your own home or a family member. It's not right that they're treating me such and such way. It could be in a, in a legal issue. It's not, you know, uh, it could be when you drive. <laughs> that wasn't right that they slammed into me and their big old truck that they don't care about dents about and I have a nice car. Yeah, that would be wrong. <laughs> you know, we we face things that are injustice and Peter acknowledges that. You know the mo- okay, so who's writing this? Peter. Who did Peter learn from? Jesus. Peter was watching Jesus pretty closely for 3 years. You know what Peter saw in Jesus? Because he says Peter's he says Jesus is our example. Peter saw Jesus be called all kinds of different names that weren't true and treated a certain way that wasn't right and ultimately taken. He saw Jesus be called one of the worst names you could call somebody, Beelzebub. It doesn't sound bad to us. It means Lord of the Flies. It was another name for Satan. Satan's the king of all the disgusting flying demons in the world. And he called they call, all oh, Jesus is this Beelzebub. And that's how he has the power to do these little healing. You know, the devil's actually helping him cast out the devil. Jesus says, how could the devil cast out the devil? The devil would be splitting his kingdom up. That's what Jesus said back to them. But they called him Beelzebub. They also said to him, and Peter saw this. They saw Jesus be, Peter saw Jesus be called a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber, and a friend of sinners. The last part was true. He was a friend of sinners. But they said, "Ah, he just overeats and just... They're exaggerating. Oh, he's just a big old pig, overeating all the time, and he's all drunk all the time, wine, bibber, friend of sinners. And they they just uh, lambasted him, and it was untrue. Peter saw Jesus be unfairly treated, verbally, verbal abuse. Peter saw Jesus uh, thrust out of his own hometown. Did you know early in the ministry of Jesus... Remember where he grew up at? Not where he was born. Where did he grow up at? Anybody remember? Nazareth. Yeah. And It was like, Nazareth was like a little scrub town. Nobody, like, what? What? Anything good come out of Nazareth? That's kind of, nobody wants to be from there. That's where he grew up. He grew up, but when he, as he got older and got his, collecting his disciples, he went to Nazareth actually. And he got in in a synagogue and read some scripture and it was very prophetic and I needed a few healings. And, and the people of the town were like, this is just this, this, this doesn't make sense. You're just one of the kids that used to be from here. And they got all mad at him. And they were offended at him. And uh, he said some prophetic things back to them, and they really got offended. And they, the Bible says in Luke chapter 4, verse 28 and 29, they grabbed him. They, fill, they were filled with wrath. They took him. They thrust him out of the town. They attempted to take him up to a They were going to take him up to a hill and cast him down head first. But he ended up, you know, just walking through. He probably just turned himself invisible. I don't know. But he walked, walked right through the mist of him and left. That's not fair. I know. That happens. One time, the Pharisees and Sadducees were so upset at him, they just began to urge him vehemently and provoke him to speak many things and to catch him in his words. They were so frustrated with him that they started taunting him with words and saying, what about this? What about that? And they didn't really care about the answers. They didn't. They didn't really want to know the truth. They just wanted to see something where they could get him to contradict. They urged him and taunted him and provoked him vehemently. And Peter saw that happen. And Jesus usually at that point doesn't, moves on. There's a point in John chapter 8 where they took up stones to stone at him. He just called himself God. Never mind the fact that he's done a hundred things that confirm that he is God. He just called, and they they were angry. And then, of course, by the time he was taken, in Gethsemane and all the treatment there. He, there was a moment when he was blindfolded. And of course, after being whipped, they threw a was a purple robe on him. And he was blindfolded. They the soldiers smote him and, and mocked him. They didn't just hit him, they mocked him and said taunting things to him. And they struck him with the palm of their hand while he was blindfolded. And it says, Prophesy, who hit who which one which one of us hit you? Whack. Whack. Which one hit you? Which one, which one was it? And they're playing games, and they're saying, oh, if you're such a prophet, you know everything. And he didn't respond. By and large, Jesus said very little during those times. And then many other things blasphemy, blasphemously spake they against him. Don't you hate it if somebody speaks something bad against you? You're just like, you want to go out and sort everything out, you know? Or somebody mistreats you. I don't like it either. But Peter saw all those things firsthand, and he saw Jesus' response to suffering. And now he says, we are called, hereunto unto where you called, verse 21, that ye should follow, leaving us, Christ left us an example, that ye should follow his steps. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're basically looking unto Jesus so that in, we want to follow his steps during times of injustice. Following Jesus' steps in times of injustice. Is anybody, you don't have to answer me, is anybody enduring at some level? Maybe, most of us is probably small. Maybe it's big. I don't know. Moments of injustice right now or just recently. If we continue to be just Christians like we ought to be, injustice will come because the world is not fair. But here we are. Here we are. We're right in Peter. Peter dealt. Peter saw it. Peter dealt with it himself. Look at a couple more preliminary things before we get to our main points. Look at verse nineteen. Peter says this is a thankworthy thing if we if we process this properly. He says it's thankworthy. Look at verse nineteen. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. That is Peter saying, hey, this is commendable if you learn to process unfair scenarios with a Godward uh, consciousness for God and with God in mind and because of the Lord, it's thankworthy. That means it's commendable. It's meritorious. Notice what he also says. Look at verse 20. Peter says in this matter of processing injustice, verse 20, he says, it's to be distinguished from just punishments. In other words, don't make a don't make a don't confuse this that you should make a distinction between your just deserts and your unjust deserts what look what he says verse 20 for what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults that's a just desert right what glory is it what do you do you deserve to be applauded if when you're buffeted that is you're punished for your own legitimate faults uh you take it patiently? Should somebody clap, applaud you and say, good job, because you took you, you you did a speeding, you you did speeding 15 miles over the speed limit in a school zone and you got hit with a double fine and you paid the ticket. Should anybody say, good job? No. You take it patiently, take it patiently and pay it. There's not a victim, you know, at all. No mistreatment there. You just made things right. He says, if you, you know, in other words, if you, you know, don't look, don't complain about that. He goes, but if you if you do well and you suffer for it, ah, and then you take it patiently, ah, this is acceptable to God. You know, we should, this is a this is an American issue here. We think it's unfair. We think we should be able to borrow a ton of money and not pay it for a long time and then complain when get fee- late fees and, and interest rates. You think that's unfair? You saw the contract, you saw the stuff, you borrowed the money, and you're going to complain that they're charging you interest and you got late fees because you're not paying on time? That's not unfair. You should be buffeted for your faults, and so should I if I do that. That's not unfair. See, we think is a man, <laughs> there's, there'll be a lawyer, there's always a lawyer out there that thinks you're a victim. You'll find one. But sometimes like, am I a victim in God's eyes? If I do something, if I borrow money and I don't pay it back according to my agreement and I'm held to a fine, then it's my issue. And that person's not a bad guy. I just have to deal with my issue. If you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently. Kids, if you're lying and mom and dad caught it and they ground you, that's exactly what you deserve. Don't complain about it. If you were stealing something and they caught it and you have to pay back, did you know if, if you ever steal something, say if you stole something that was $4 and maybe you ate the food, it was food or something, candy. You know, your parents have the right to actually make you pay back more than that. If You go with the Bible, I think it's like three or four times. You go with the Old Testament law. But even if they just said, hey, you ate $4 worth of candy and you stole it, you need to at least pay us back $4. That's actually mercy. And if you have to do that, you take it patiently. You're being buffeted for your faults, and so don't complain. And it doesn't categorize as unjust treatment. All right? So, this is something where we Americans need to get a hold of because we're like, we just need to deal with dealing with, the un, dealing with our own just desserts, let alone graduate a little bit and come over to here to dealing with doing right and getting unjust things. See, we're all in kindergarten, I think. I know definitely I am in this issue. All right, so what's he saying? All right? Um, <laughs> What glory is it? If you've buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? No glory. Should. But when you do well and you suffer for it and you just roll with it, that's commendable with God. God says, that's above. That's a, that's a, that's a higher quality of response. That reminds me of my son Jesus. And that's what Peter says. Now we're in verse 21. For even hereunto we were you called. We're called to those steps. You're not called to go to Jerusalem today and step up the Temple Mount. But you're called to stay where you're at now and walk the steps of patient response to injustice. Verse 21. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Ye should follow his steps. Boy, it's easier said than done. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide here, Yannick. Actually, the next two slides. We're gonna go. We're gonna go following his steps in, in matters of injustice. So here's our three points for today. What steps to, what steps did Jesus take? Well, there's probably a lot of things, but the text kind of... I see in the text three things that kind of describe his steps, okay? The steps of Jesus that I can copy. During times of unfair treatment and injustice, I see number one, Jesus always does right. That is, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. We'll look at that. I see also that we're to abstain from reviling back at somebody. And then the next, I see that Jesus, he committed his outcome to God the Father. He committed his outcome to God. And we'll try to discern these. Let's look at these. Number one, uh, look at Always Do Right. Look what it says there. We should follow his steps. Verse 22, what were Jesus' steps? First of all, he did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Now, we know during the life of Jesus, he did no sin, right? He was sinless. As God, he couldn't sin, as man, he didn't sin. There's a mystery to that whole, it's called the peccability of Christ. Could Jesus have ever sinned? And there's this theological discussion, and the conclusion most of us come to, well, as God, He can't. And as man, He didn't, even though He felt the, the temptation in that sense to, the appeal to, He didn't. But Jesus did no sin. But then, even more so, I think I want to narrow it down to this, in the context of Jesus being sinned against, and taunted by sinners, and trash-talked, in that context, he did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. See, here's where we're at. This is where I'm at. You know what makes me sin more? You know what really brings out the sin in me? Sin from somebody else. I think I'm a, you know, I th- I'm a pretty good saint until sinners get around me. You have some pe- person trash-talking me or acting sin. You know what makes me angry? Somebody gets angry at me. Making me angry. You're making me angry from you being angry. You know, somebody yelling at me, it makes me want to yell at them. You know, somebody starts uh, lying, it makes me want to lie back. At me. You know, sin sometimes can bring out sin out of us. Somebody's sinning on you, it brings out the sin in you. That's kind of the Adamic nature. That's the old man. You're like, No, I don't, can't let the old man have control anymore. Paul says we got the new man. Let him be in control. In the context of being treated wrong or trash talking or uh, uh, a scenario of, uh, of uh, that's just unfair. We got to resist playing that game. We got to resist becoming uh, bad mouth ourselves. We got to resist sinning as ourselves. You don't fight sin with sin. You fight sin with the with the with the uh, actions and tone of the Savior. That's how we fight sin, and with a spirit filled attitude. I, this, I mean, this is kind of a, a strange example, but I knew of a person, this guy, this it was a very unfortunate. There was a spouse, this man, he had an affair, and it was bad, and it was wrong. His wife was so upset about it, she, to spite him, she went and had an affair, to spite him. And then it blew everything up there. Like, you don't fight sin with sin. That is a horrible, terrible thing to be experienced in the sense of being a victim of, of your spouse doing that. Horrible. But that's not the result. That's not the, I mean, that's not the response a person should have. Jesus, when he suffered wrongfully, he did no sin still. Neither was Guile found in his mouth. Same thing with us. Look at 1 Peter 3.16. 1 Peter 3.16 and 17. It says, "...having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ." Verse 17, for it is better if the will of God be so <laughs> that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. And he goes on to say that's what Jesus did. So as I think of the steps of Jesus for us today in and, and responding to injustice and how I might meet it today, whether it seems like it's small in a workplace or on the road or something big, like somebody is adamantly after me and they are they are aggressively try to persecute me. One of the things I see is I need to be like Jesus. Always do right. Do not play the game of don't play with the pigs in the pig pen. And it kind of relates to the second point. Second point is, as we see here, abstain from reviling back. Look at verse 23, the half of verse 23. The first half, who, what is Jesus' steps? His other step was when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered threaten not so it's talking about kind of that lashing back and it's similar to the first point but it's more specific here when he was reviled you know what reviled means again it's when you are taunted when you are um it really means verbal abuse that's hard to take verbal abuse i mean that gets to your heart sometimes you almost rather somebody just beat me up instead of trash me my body can take it better than my heart you know the proverb says that uh, a uh, uh, the, uh, there's a proverb, I might paraphrase it, but it goes along the lines of this in the, pro- in the book, in the Bible. Um, the spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity. That means a man from the inside, he can handle the pain, the physical pain. But a broken spirit, who can bear? And sometimes hard words on a person can break their spirit more than hard punches. And so Jesus had both of those, of course, but it says when he was reviled, when he was trash-talked, verbal abuse, called all these bad things, he didn't play that game and revile back. You you ever see people like they always have a good comeback? You say somebody, somebody, they got a good comeback and everything. Could Jesus have a good comeback? At least in our fleshly, to appeal to our fleshly? Of course, of course. And he sometimes did have good comebacks in the sense that we're good to teach somebody but not to play their game of, of, of uh, ungracious words and, and unwholesome speech. The Bible says Jesus had wholesome words. Okay, so what is it saying? Abstain from reviling back. That's what it says. Christ did not exchange verbal abuse with others who engaged in it. Even in this, but then it says, even when he was suffering, uh, it says when he, where does it say? Verse 22. When, because Christ also, I'm sorry, verse twenty. 23, when he suffered, he's under, he's under anguish. What did he do? He threatened not. When he suffered, he threatened. Remember Christ propped up on the cross. This is one thing that amazes me, is Jesus propped up on the cross suffering. I don't know about you, but here, what do you like when you suffer? What do you like to people? Come on, you're a grump, like me. When you're suffering, you're a grump to everybody. Everybody pays a price for you not having a meal. Pays the price because you missed your coffee. You throw your big old grumps. That's how I am. But I, I mean, that's how the old man was me. I need to get upset. When Jesus suffered, he didn't threaten back. When he's up on the cross and people come in and talk, no, oh, if you be the son of God, come down from the cross. You saved others. Why don't you save yourself? He didn't say, yeah, well, <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. No, they spit on him. And, um, and you know, even when John came there with his mother, And John was like there at the mother and mother Mary weeping and everything. And and John's like, Don't you do it? Jesus, don't you see what I'm doing for you? Don't you see I love you? You know, no. Is this he was this composure? When he suffered, he threatened not. And even the two thieves, the two thieves, both at first. What was it, six hours he was on the cross? At some, maybe after halftime, one of them changed. But at first, they both reviled him. Then one of them changed his mind. I don't remember if it was the left hand or right hand. One of them ended up changing his mind and saying, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say, yeah, well, what did you just say a few minutes ago? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Wow, this is the, this is the Jesus of the Bible here. He remained non-threatening and abstained from cruelty when the cruel words came on him. See, this is, it's like how many of us today would say, you know what, at this point, Pastor, I can see I need to, I need to, kinda, I need to graduate up into this level. Anybody like that? I'm there. Anybody need to graduate up in couple, maybe one of these, half of this verse here? You know, I, need, I do too. All right. I just heard a testimony of a guy who was an Iranian convert to Christianity. A lot of the Middle East is Muslims. There's amazing. kind of as a side note, um, God is saving Muslims in the Middle East, and I'm, and I'm not the only one saying this. It's, I'm finding out, and he's using unique ways to see them saved, and it's a blessing to see that. But this guy is Iranian. I saw an interview with him, and I don't remember how many. It, was, it seems like it was, oh, it was with the, I think in the last 10 years he became a Christian. But he was telling his testimony to a, a Christian um, uh, interviewer. And he's basically saying, you know, I was raised in Iran. I was a such and such, I don't know if a Sunni or a Shiite Muslim, but one of the Muslim groups. And he said, uh, and he's telling about the interactions he had with the, this Christian businesswoman in Malaysia and this Christian person. And he, he, he just told about different points of contact that he had with people who were Christians. And contrasting it with him with his, with his uh, embracing of Islam, and he tried to recite the Koran, and all, he tried to memorize it, and, uh, but, but as he was beginning to mingle with Christians, he said, one of the things that struck me was coming into the home of a Christian, he said this, he goes, one of the things that struck me was just the love, an atmosphere of love in that home, and acceptance, and there was just a, more of a peaceful atmosphere versus more of a threatening thing, like that. He goes, that, that really had an effect on me. And there were several factors that led to his conversion, and that was one of them. But it was a blessing to hear that, that there was that lack of a reviling and cruelty. So, all right, Jesus steps. I always do right, abstain from reviling back. And then we see at the end of verse 23, he commits his outcome to God. Look what it says, Jesus committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So again, the whole course of Jesus' life, um, there were moments of you know, false accusations and unfair treatment, and certainly by the time he's taken into Gethsemane and passed around from Pilate to Herod, then scourged and then put up on the, on the cross, he's in his humanness, he's committing his outcome to God the Father. You know, he, he said to Pilate, I'm paraphrasing, Pilate, it's a Roman leader, says, You don't have any power except what God gave you. <laughs> you know, he knew that everything was perfectly dialed in by the Father, that it wouldn't go more or less than it ought to be in, in his case, it was dialed up. Torturous experience. Up on the cross. And finally, Father, you know, into thy hands I commend or commit in one of those words, I give over my spirit. Um, look what it says there in chapter 4, verse 19. Look what it says. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God, chapter 4, verse 19, wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Peter's saying, you know, you're suffering According to the will of God, obviously God has allowed something or perhaps even designed it on purpose. Let them who are suffering according to the will of God just say, God, I'm, I'm, you, you're responsible for the outcome of this scenario. Now, I want to make a few distinctions before we go any further because I, I don't want anybody to be confused. <clears throat> so this is written to people in the first century who didn't have a lot of recourse on what happened to them. You know, they're being... It's, you don't have a good you don't have a good master. I mean, the master-slave, master-servant relationship was tight. It was hard to get out of that. It was stronger than what we'd say, employee-employer-employee. Em, employee. But there were people like that where they're bound to certain masters, and there was some mistreatment. And Peter's saying, "Here's how you respond to it." It was hard. There's there's certain discomforts they went through. It was, it was hard to get recourse. But but I just want you to understand, kind of in a bigger picture, I'm not discounting the idea of like the, a justice system. Does everybody hear me? You know who designed the justice system, the concept of it, the institution of government, God's idea. God, not the, the, the concept, the institution that was created of a government and justice system. That was God's idea, and we're to employ that and use it, though it's faulted and it has imperfect people pulling the levers. If you have somebody that puts a, you know, that damages your house in a criminal activity, you have a right to employ the justice system, try to get fair compensation. I'm not saying to be passive in that sense. You should. If there's abuse, we need to address it. Stuff like that, okay? But obviously, Peter's talking to people who probably couldn't do as much here. And when you can do something about it, do something about it. And then sometimes it's usually just kind of on that, what do you call it, that passive... That passive level of people is kind of mean. People, it's not like, oh, I can go to the law with them. It's just like, it just isn't right. That's usually where most Americans are, Whereas there's that passive aggressiveness, right, of somebody, that passive mistreatment. If You need to, uh, if somebody's physically attacked, I don't think you should be, this is another thought. If you're ever physically attacked, you know what you should do? Defend yourself. Defend them off. You know, if I was walking somewhere, and I saw I was walking in my maybe in my neighborhood somewhere, and I, kind of there's some areas in my neighborhood where it's kind of a little secluded. And I saw some dad with his kids, and I saw this dad being attacked by some guy, some thugs attacking him, trying to assault the dad, and the kids are there panicking. You know what I do? <laughs> well, in theory, what I would do, <laughs> I would try to I would do something to try to go help him. Okay, if I, if God gives me the courage in that moment, ideally I'm supposed to go. Help that guy! I don't want that guy to I know, fend this guy off and punch him a few times and put him in some kind of wrestling move and hold him down till the police get there. I would have, to, if I had to hurt that guy and take him aside so that I can save the dad, I would do that. And I thought, right? Doesn't that make sense? You know, because you're, you're, this is a—it's an expression of God's uh, justice in those little moments. God's going to eventually make all things right. Well, and then I start thinking, well, I would do that for this dad too. <laughs> I'm a dad of kids. Somebody's attacking me. I'm like, I have more of a, I have more of a um, motive even to live because I have a wife and a kid. So I'd be like, hey, I'm not going to let this guy kill or assault my kids' dad. That's how I think. I want my kids to have a dad and my wife to have a husband as much as I can until God overrides that however he wants. So I don't want anybody to misunderstand this stuff. But at the same time, there's moments where it's not, you don't have, have much recourse. And I think that's where some of these Christians were. It mentions suffering throughout this trial of their faith in heaviness through manifold temptations. Uh, uh, what does it say? Verse, uh, verse 15, chapter 4, 15, and 16. Chapter 4, 15, and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf in other words you're kind of being singled out because you are professing jesus christ you know if that's what's happening and it's even like i said maybe it's kind of a low level thing it's not necessarily criminal yet but you're being singled out and it's unfair and it's not right is some verbal slurs and all that peter says you know what look at jesus's steps don't revile back watch your facebook language watch your actual language coming out don't play that game And commit your outcome to God. Do you think God sees everything? Does God see everything? Yeah. Yeah. Thou God seest me. Even Hagar said in her unfair scenario with Abraham and this mean, weird, something wife, friend, something, Sarah. And Hagar's like, thou God seest me. And God said, yeah, I see you. And God helped Hagar. Hagar. Does God see us? Yes. And then the other question is, is God really in ultimate control of everything? Yeah. yeah. I know it's true. I can't explain every moment of it because sometimes he allows something that I'm like, I wouldn't allow that, but ultimately he's in control. And so P- Peter's saying that commit. What, is let, what did Jesus do? Verse 23. He committed himself to him that judgeth Righteously. Look at twenty-four verses, twenty-four to twenty-five. We'll start winding this down. Who Jesus, his own self, bare our sins in his own body on the on the tree, that we being uh, dead to sins should live unto righteousness. By whose stripes ye were healed, for ye were as sheep going astray, but now, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. It's amazing. Think about this. Usually, when I the best good I usually accomplish. Is when I'm in healthy and I'm strong and I'm, you know, I've had a good night's sleep and I perform good in my sport or I perform good on doing something at work and and all that stuff. I usually have my best fruits come from my best, um, most ideal conditioning. All right? Makes sense sports wise. You're gonna be better in your sport if you're in a good condition, right? Sometimes it's opposite spiritually. Sometimes the best fruits that come in spiritually come in the most non-ideal scenarios when you're not doing well it's not being you're not being treated well and your health isn't the best some of the best fruits come out think about this the greatest thing ever accomplished for you and I was accomplished by a person in his mo- greatest moment of weakness Jesus in his weakness did the best thing for us Jesus in the moments of the worst of, of injustice, God turned that thing around and actually used it to compass His justice of atoning for our sins. Isn't that an amazing thought? It's almost mysterious, but it's true. Jesus did much good through an unexpected scenario the cross. He fulfilled our atonement. He took the ugliness of man that was thrown at Him, He turned it around and made it the means of our redemption. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what your Bible's saying here. It's like Jesus had lemons thrown at him, and what did he make? Lemonade. He had manure thrown at him, and he made fertilizer and grew something, right? He had stones thrown at him, and he used it to build his church. You know, he just processed the thing that happened. I mean, that's that's the impression I think Peter's trying to help us see. He's like, look what he did. Look what good came out of this bad thing. And I have to hope the same thing with me. What good can come out of the way I process mistreatment. What good can I make out of somebody who's like, man, they've been such a bad mouth or they've been unfair or they've been um, whatever. Can I turn that around like Jesus? And here's some of the steps I'm to take, of course. I read about a guy, a pastor, his name was Robert Chapman, Robert C. Chapman. He was a pastor in the 1800s in England. For decades, he was a Uh, a pastor, and Charles Spurgeon called him one of the saintliest men he had ever known. He actually had never married, he'd been a single his whole life, Robert Chapman. And um, I read that this man was, um, he would go to this one grocer, this one grocery store where there's a grocer, the guy running the grocery store. And this grocer became so upset at at Pastor Chapman's um, open-air preaching, that's what he didn't like. He, this preacher would not just preach inside his building, he'd preach outside, open-air preaching. And the grocer didn't like, I don't like this guy, this religious fanatic out there preaching. You know, He didn't like it. And so the grocer became angry at Chapman's open-air preaching that he would go and spit on him. For a number of years, that grocer would continue to attack um, Chapman and castigate him. One day, one of Chapman's... Um, relatives came to visit him in his town there in the in in the area is in the greater london area if i understand right a chapman um was uh robert chapman was actually raised in a wealthy family in a nice area kind of a cultured place but he he went to pastor and live in an area that was more um uh impoverished and just modest he lived under modest means so he has this wealthy relative that came to visit him was like kind of like why is he still living like this? Why is he like this? So he went to visit his I don't know if they were cousins or whatever but this relative came to visit Chapman and visited and stuff and he was just kind of like examining his his relative of kind of processing the interesting way he's chosen to live and and uh, but anyways the relative when he was going before he left the relative says you know I want to get you some things I you live pretty simply. I would like to buy you some groceries or something. Can I do that? He's like, sure, because I'd like to buy you a lot of groceries. And so, and Chapman says, I'll let you buy me groceries, but you you have to go to this one store over here. And he said, where's that? Well, it's this such and such store. And he pointed him to the one store where the grocer is that he has this issue with. But he didn't tell his relative about that. He says, if you're going to buy me something, you have to buy because he knew he was going to buy a lot. Go to that. Go to his store. And that's what they did. The uh, ignorant the relative ignorant of the previous interactions that he had with the other grocer he went to the store and he selected a large amount of food the relative did a large amount of food, and paid for it and the grocer back in the day you could have it we still now in a way you can deliver it, have it delivered he was to have it the re, the relative says this is to be delivered at such and such place and so he told the 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 relative told the grocer he says you deliver it to this address. This is R.C. Chapman, and the stunned grocer told the visitor, "He's like, no, no, you, you, you must have come, you must have come to the wrong grocery store. You came to the wrong grocery store. Then didn't he, he says, no. He told me this grocery store at this location that I'm supposed to go to, and uh, the, specifically this one. And the grocer's like, all right. So the grocer had collected the things that were purchased." And delivered it, and the account goes, the grocer arrived at Chapman's house where he broke down in tears and asked for forgiveness. And it says to my account that he gave his life to Christ that very day. is that amazing? It is, but in a way, it's not. I mean, you, we follow the steps of Jesus has a redemptive effect. It has a heart-softening effect. And th- that's what happened to us, right? We see Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross had a redemptive effect on me. It, he drew me to himself. So we often don't know. Here's where I'm concluding. We often don't know the good that might be accomplished, even if it's on a small level or on a big level. We often don't know the good we might accomplish when we follow his steps, especially in the context of injustice, it might be something pleasant and redemptive like that.